Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Attention Please podcast now on video. If you like this podcast, kindly like, share, subscribe. You know what to do. So I'm back after a while and uh, thinking of what topic to do a podcast on. And uh, while you may be expecting something on the on the Karnataka elections, um, there's nothing that I can say that hasn't been said already. We're expecting something on the Kerala files. Well, how can I top through Vrati? And uh, for IPL, uh, maybe, maybe in the future, my roundup of IPL. So today I wanted to talk on something which is perhaps less controversial, though perhaps even more significant for the fate of humanity. And that is uh, AI, artificial intelligence. So the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was, you know, you, over the last few months, I think close to a year now, uh, we've seen like artificial intelligence products uh, finally dominating the mindscape of humanity, especially chat GPT. Um, I mean, AI has been here for a while, pretty spectacular, but this is the first time I would say that it has caught on in the way, let's say the iPhone did uh, many years ago as something which is, uh, which is transformational. Um, and I just want to like kind of anchor this discussion on two warnings. I mean, really what this top, what, I, what I'm going to talk about today is will AI destroy humanity? Um, now that I have your attention. Um, so it, it's actually triggered by two things that you know, happened fairly recently. One was a, a, a group of um, intellectuals uh, wrote a letter um, a warning about uh, fascism in India. Oh, I'm sorry, I got confused. No, I actually wanted to talk about a group of intellectuals wrote a letter about uh, halting um, all development of AI and like basically a moratorium on AI research. Um, and one of the signatories was Elon Musk. Now, that's fairly unique given the fact that you normally don't expect Elon Musk, who's kind of emerged, especially after his acquisition of Twitter as kind of a uh, more than a billionaire, I think, uh, I mean, among all the billionaires, perhaps a kind of uh, a, a figure of a certain kind of counterculture. And that counterculture is the, you know, center right, uh, libertarian, you know, radical free speech kind of a person. And normally don't expect somebody of that political persuasion or at least that kind of ideology to essentially say, make the government stop all AI research. That's normally not what you would expect him to say, but he did. Now one could obviously speculate that this is not something which he believes in. It's just that perhaps his competitors, his, his once, once collaborator, which is open AI, uh, have, have, have kind of in the inside lane. So now he's basically trying to drag them back, whatever it is. But it was, at least I was fairly surprised that Elon Musk chose to be on the list of signatories asking for basically government intervention, which kind of is against his, you know, basically his spiel. Um, the other thing was kind of somebody on the very opposite end of the spectrum. So while Elon Musk is this kind of very brash, showy, and I, I'm, I'm not totally convinced that he's a genius. Um, he's obviously I mean, genius as in a technical genius. Um, I definitely he's a genius when it comes to building businesses. There's no two doubt, no two ways about it. But then the, the other person who sounded a warning about AI is definitely a genius. And, you know, some places they call him the godfather of AI. Some places they actually call him the grandfather of AI, which I don't understand. I think they 
mistake the godfather with grandfather, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, who uh, is a Turing Award winner. And a Turing Award, for those of you who don't know, is really the computer science equivalent of a Nobel Prize. So he also, you know, sounded a fairly dire warning about AI while quitting Google. And he is, again, from a political perspective, he's kind of the polar opposite of Elon Musk. So one of the things about uh, Jeffrey Hinton was he actually left MIT because he didn't want to do research, which was financed by the U.S. military. So he's like an extreme progressive pacifist. So he joined Google and then he quit Google. He retired from Google. And we basically said the reason why I'm retiring from Google is because I want to be able to be independent. And I can't be independent uh, while working for Google because obviously there are certain rules, uh, things which you can say when you work for a company. Uh, and he also has, you know, he, he there was he went on a few media outlets basically warning uh, people and basically saying the same thing about AI that, you know, Elon Musk and his letter said that he's worried about the direction that AI research has taken. So it's especially the point that he's trying to make was that there were many things about AI that, you know, companies like Google were not doing because they were afraid of the ethics or they were afraid of what it could lead to. But then once uh, OpenAI released ChatGPT, there was enormous, uh, and you, you, you just see the, the, the difference in BARD, which originally came out from Google and the BARD as it is today. So Google was basically embarrassed. I mean, they were supposed to be the big guys of AI. And, and then here comes an upstart company, which makes up really superior products. Obviously, their investors and shareholders are really like, what were you sleeping? What, what the hell? So that's really what Jeffrey Hinton is kind of warning against, a kind of arms race, um, rather than nations, but arms race between the mega corporations in the world to develop more and more advanced AI and where that would lead human civilization. That's what he's trying to say. I think his point is quite a lot subtle than what Elon Musk was saying. Um, and that, that's my personal opinion. So the, the interesting thing is you basically two people or two groups of people from the opposite ends of the political spectrum essentially saying the same thing. So it's something which we should consider seriously. None of the, none of, neither Elon Musk nor Jeffrey Hinton are what you would call Luddites. They're not like, you know, people who just oppose technology for the politics of it. No, they are not. They're obviously people who, who've built their reputations on technology. And uh, they're also fairly intelligent people. Let's, let's at least agree on that. So when they're saying something, it's, 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 it's definitely worth thinking about. So let's talk a little bit about chat GPT or what's the technical term and chat GPT is like calling search technology Google. Uh, it's a product. So what we're basically talking about at this point of time, what has kind of attracted attention uh, is what is known as large language models or LLMs. So large language models are a very, it's kind of a subclass of machine learning and AI. So what, how do you interpret? I mean, what is great about large language models? And initially when it came out, a few AI researchers, like I forgot the name, but he's like the head of AI research at Meta. He said, you know, this is not a big deal. I mean, it's, it looks great, but it's not a huge technological achievement. And he's absolutely right. It isn't. So what, but what actually gets attention sometimes, it's not so much technological, a technological achievement, it's when it becomes 
a product that people can get emotional about or when people talk about. And that's really the, the victory of the iPhone when it first came out. I mean, BlackBerry had many of those features. It's even Microsoft's phone had many of those features, but Apple was able to put it into this package that basically engendered public conversation and kind of transitioned the world to smartphones. So sometimes it's not really the tech, which is interesting. It's, it's, it's when the tech becomes a super hit. That's the thing. And definitely chat GPT is definitely a super hit. So let's talk a little bit about large language models. So the way to think about large language models, even though it seems kind of magical sometimes when you type things and wow, uh, you know, that's an actual, that's a machine producing that kind of output. You have to understand the way it's built is basically by ingesting. And so the, take a step back, the algorithms or the tech behind uh, large language models isn't particularly new. It's fairly old. It's just that these things were essentially research ideas and the amount of computation power that's needed to essentially digest huge corpus of text that was just, that doesn't, didn't exist now, but with, with computation becoming really, really cheap, it's just not possible to basically implement the algorithms at scale. That's really the innovation, let's say. So it's more an engineering innovation rather than science. But coming back to the notion of a large language model. So the way when you generate prompts, at least this is the way I like to think of it. It's really very sophisticated Google. It's like Google in a way that we haven't seen it. So in Google, for instance, if you have a question like, um, I have a bump on my forehead, uh, what, what, what could it be? You can ask questions like that on Google and Google actually gives you a kind of a PC if, you, if there's a hit on your answer somewhere. Or let's say you want to understand something about cybersecurity. Um, you will possibly find a great answer to that in, in a place like Stack Exchange. But the, but the limitation of Google or limitation of a search engine is you're restricted to what people have already written, what human beings have already written and put out on the net. If you have a question like, I don't know, uh, why does Kolkata Night Riders suck so much? as a franchise. I mean, again, I, I'm pretty sure ChatGPT, no AI will be able to give you the answer. And you don't need an AI to answer this question. Any human being can answer this question. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is that the answer to it has to be written down somewhere in, in the web. Google can't generate an answer. So that is where the AI comes into play. So what the AI does is it basically this ingests, um, it ingests a large amount of data in terms of facts and in terms of writing styles and in terms of, in case of like, it can write programs, right? So if you ask it to write, like, let's say there's something called the N Queens problem. If you ask it to write the N Queens problem, it will immediately produce a very good, it can produce the code. It can explain N Queens problem to you quite well. And even if you ask it, what would happen if I generalize this problem to N dimensions, it can also give you the answer to that. Um, fairly impressive, but it, when you say impressive, it is that these programs do exist. Somebody's written them and it just basically read the program. It can't solve any problem. That's the thing. It can't solve any problem. Even the kind of content it produces, you will see it's very repetitive. And it's initially you might find it wow. But then if you keep on kind of giving very similar prompts, it kind of is 
tells you the same thing again and again in different ways. It's not particularly flexible. Maybe in the first try, you might think it's a human being, but if you keep on kind of pushing the same prompt again and again, you see it saying the same thing. Now you could say that it's still a research prototype. Maybe if it's trained on more things, it will become more intelligent, but there's a fundamental limitation. And the reason why I'm spending some time is I just want to be realistic about some of the dire consequences that have often been tom-tommed about, about what AI could lead to. So right now, what we have seen isn't particularly alarming. It's a novelty. So the way I like to think of, again, as large language models is it's like Marich in Ramayana. So for those of you who remember, Marich was the Rakshas who pretended to be a deer and then mimicked uh, Lord Rama's voice in a way that both Sita and Lakshman felt that it was Lord Rama. So that's what, but it's, it, but Marich is a mimic. Marich understands the context, just like large language models. It can mimic, it, it, it has been trained on a large amount of data about the way Lord Rama speaks, about Sita, Lakshman, it was exactly that, right? But it's not the real thing. And it's not a particularly dangerous Rakshas either, right? But it is, it can mimic. That's what's special about large language models. So for instance, one of the first things I personally tested out was a dialogue. I asked it to construct a dialogue between Plato and Aristotle, because I knew that they have definitely ingested a large amount of data on like two of uh, Western philosophy's greatest, you know, but they have very different philosophical outlooks. That's why I wanted to have a dialogue between Plato and Aristotle. They, they didn't agree on, I mean, they were very different in many ways. So that it, it actually constructed a very decent dialogue, but once you started providing more and more prompts, you, you, you got that same thing that was basically going back and saying the same thing again and again and again. And the dialogues went particularly well written. They were fairly rudimentary, I would say. But again, seeing something being generated on the fly, that's, it's a jaw-dropping moment. But the kind of the jaw kind of comes up again once you kind of probe a little bit on the prompt and you realize, no, a person who actually knows about Plato and Aristotle and is intelligent enough to write a dialogue would obviously produce better content than this. Now, again, one could say that as the AI becomes better, as it learns from these prompts, it will become better. And that's true. But again, it is ultimately what large language models do is it essentially dynamically creates text in text and images now also in a way that is fairly realistic in terms of it can mimic a human, but it's not of great quality. So for those of you who've seen, there is this reply GPT on Twitter. And I often see that people like Boomerah in CSK. So those images are like fairly crappy images. Um, it's like very obviously AI. So if that is the limit of what we have, then I think we are pretty safe when it, term, when it comes to apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm guessing it will improve. So I think one of the, the, the kind of things to leave this conversation with is recently, I mean, the, the thing with chat GPT is the, or large language models, it cannot solve a problem. It can, if you ask it to create a, you know, a closed loop uh, artificial pancreas, Right, simulate the algorithm that the pancreas uses, write code for that. You can't do that. 
I absolutely can't because nobody's written it. That's why, because it doesn't exist on open source. So it, it won't be able to generate, but if it did, it would just give it to you. It would explain it to you. That's fine, but it can't, can't generate something which obviously, which doesn't exist. So that notion of sentience, which is really where people are going to that the AI will become smarter than humans. We're nowhere close to it becoming smarter than humans in that way. Yes, it does wrote things much faster, but wasn't that what computers were for? I mean, do um, computers do arithmetic better than human beings? Yes, they do it faster, but they can't do something that human beings can't do ever. That they can't. So that's really where AI is. So some of the alarmism, I, I, I don't just don't get. Because this is, well, that's why you invented computers. Really? I mean, that's this is really it. So recently they had this, like, they used chat GPT to ace one of the medical exams that they take in US. I mean, it scored insanely well. And it would, right? Because medical exams are basically regurgitation of facts. But it did very poorly on our IIT JE. Because again, there are problems, there are innovative problems, and it's not immediately obvious based on their corpus of physics, how to apply that. that LLM can't do that yet very well. So again, are those problems very difficult? Of course they're difficult, but it's not as if they're not solvable by human beings or no human being has solved it. Obviously there's a master answer set for that. But LLM can't figure, figure that out. So this should, this should convince us that there is quite a lot of limitations to what large language models can do. Now, what's the nightmare situation? The nightmare situation is a terminator kind of situation where you have basically machines taking over the world. That's essentially what I would say is the worst kind of thing that could happen. So how would that happen? It's not that machines can become sentient, but what could happen. Again, I'm not saying that we've seen any such technology, at least in the public domain. And many people say, well, you don't see things in the public domain because, you know, these kinds of technologies, all the governments, they keep it secret. So, of course, that, I mean, that's, there's nothing you can do about it. You can always say, well, something like this exists, you've just never seen it yet. It usually doesn't happen because what happens is if, if, if some great technology is actually developed by the government, somebody figures out a way to release it to the public and make more money. That's the, that's the reason why you know, governments are years ahead of what public, of what industry is. I, I just don't buy that in this day and age. Especially because in some of the big companies like Google and Meta and Amazon, they have resources that dwarf, that, that, that you know, governments, the resources the governments are, are minuscule compared to what these companies have. So these companies are like mega nations. And unlike government, they don't have oversight committees. They don't have any other political party coming in and seeing what they're doing. So they can pretty much do whatever they want. So the, the threat is not really government. The threat is these large corporations because they basically work without any oversight. So the nightmare situation is again, you know, a terminator kind of situation where you have machines programmed with objectives of destruction by humans. That's the thing about AI, right? You can provide it certain number of goals and it can optimize based on its acquisition of the goal. So it's not the robot who wants to kill humans. It's the human which gives the objective that kill human beings. And the, the nightmare situation about AI is that because AI or machine learning doesn't work or the whole notion of neural networks don't work in the way humans work. 
is that the way it will attain those objectives will be in such a lateral way that humans might not be able to come up with defenses to that. So one of the examples is that this happened many years ago. So they had, uh, I've forgotten the story. So I mean, there was, the, there was a game called Go and they constructed, and this was IBM, which constructed, this was, again, this is not new, this story. So they constructed a machine that trained itself on Go moves. And then they, that AI machine went against another AI machine. And the AI machine, which it trained itself on humans, lost miserably to the AI machine, which AI machine, which it trained itself on this AI. So one of the things, the interesting thing was they had experienced Go players who were auditing the moves that the machine was making and they, the machine basically massacred everybody. But the kind of moves the machines were making, the Go players said no human being would make those machines. If you look at it, it's almost counterintuitive, but at the end, the guy wins. So that's really the danger of AI because it's once it falls in the hands of somebody evil and somebody smart enough to be able to program the goals, won't actually tell them how to get it. If, if, you, if you tell them, then it's like normal programming, right? The main thing is that the AI figures it out. The real challenge is when the AI figures it out, that figuring will be so lateral to the way humans think that a human will not be able to counter it. Only AI will be able to counter it. So it'll be basically AI going versus AI. Now, again, we have nowhere close to this. So this is like science fiction, what I'm talking about. So I personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a little surprised at this. At this. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert. I have a PhD in computer science. It's kind of a little bit of AI mathematics was really what I did my PhD in. So it's not that I don't know some of the fundamental mathematical concepts, but again, I'm not <laughs> nowhere close to a Elon Musk or a, you know, Jeffrey Hinton, and that goes without saying. So when they're saying something, I have to say, well, obviously they know more, uh, but I first personally don't see what the problem is. Now, I don't see the, the, the Terminator kind of problem. Now, again, I read the interviews of Jeffrey Hinton at least, and he doesn't say this either. So what he's what he's worried about is you know the progressive nightmare, which is fake news, and you know election stealing, and the fact that it's now impossible, according to him, it will become impossible to distinguish between basically human generated content and AI generated content. So you, I can show you a video that is absolutely fake, and you will not be able to. So basically, how can we trust the world if we can't trust our senses? That's that's really where the, the thing is going. But again, I, I, I personally don't really buy this because I think people tend to believe what they want to believe. So it doesn't matter how good the production is. People will believe stuff. I mean, people believe shitty gifts in WhatsApp they, or you know, something written with spelling mistakes. And they believe it. You know, I read this on WhatsApp. So I don't think that AI is particularly going to change things. Um, and people will believe what they want to believe. And if they, if, if they, if the machine doesn't generate the data, then they will just convince themselves that the data exists. That's the way the world has worked for so long. So I don't think that it fundamentally changes anything. 
Now, where obviously the problem is, is going to be the problem that happened with computers, right? Is a lot of jobs are going to go away and not come back. So copywriting jobs, and recently there is this writer strike going on in the US. So all the comedy writers, all the writers of shows have, have gone on strike. So there is no Jimmy Kimmel, none of that, no Stephen Colbert. Uh, so they're, one of their demands is that you cannot use AI for writing jokes. And yes, I, I, I would say they should, be, they should be worried about large language models because what is jokes? What kind of jokes do they write? They basically look at a large corpus of existing jokes. That's why uh, good joke writers are good stand-up comedians. I mean, they watch other comedians' routines, right? And bad ones copy it, but the good ones are inspired by it. But guess what? Large language models will do a much better job of inspiration because inspiration is nothing other than training your neural network. And you, a human being can't beat the scale at which the large language models has its internal neural network. So if the large language model basically trains itself on late night jokes for the last 40 years and every news article that is being produced in the world, it will start producing a, a Stephen Colbert kind of show like this. There's nothing the, and because, and again, because it's so cheap. I mean, think of a number of guy writing, you know, the monologue of Stephen Colbert. I mean, he has to write like five or six every night and one might get accepted by Colbert, right? As it's, okay, I'll use this line. That's how the writing process works. Uh, Larry David, the, the famous creator of Seinfeld was a writer on Saturday Night Live. Not even one of his uh, lines, not even one, not even one of his things was ever selected. So that just goes to show how much of content is left on the table. Now, once you have AI, the AI can produce thousands of these. So the amount of choice. So yeah, it might be, I mean, a human being might produce five routines, which are much better, but the AI won't produce five routines. It'll provide 5,000. And no, there's no way you can compete with the 5,000 with the five. There are only five better in the 5,000 than the five that you have. So the fact that writers are scared, and again, this kind of reminds me again of Bengal. I, I, I remember the story of my grandmother. My grandmother used to work in the Indian Statistical Institute. So when, when I was in third year, my father bought me a computer, which was a Pentium computer, and it came to our house. And my grandmother was there, and she said, I can't believe that a computer is coming to a house. When the first computer came to ISI, remember the union made us sit in front of the lawn saying, this will kill jobs. This is like Western evil. And today that computer has come into our house. So the fact is there's always genuine fear about new technology replacing jobs. And it's easy to say, you know what, this is the march of technology, you know, cars replaced horses. But one has to understand that this is tragic and it's not that, you know, people can be retrained. I mean, this is something which politicians love to say. You can, you know, yeah, people can be retrained. No, you can't be retrained. The jobs will go away. If you're one of those guys who drew the short straw and you were one of the you engaged in a profession that will be replaced by large language models and there is no regulation. I mean, what, what the writers here are doing is essentially that kind of Bengal progressive shit that, you know, I'll strike work and you'll have to write that you won't use AI. That's obviously not going to work. People are going to use AI. Okay. The, the cost benefit of AI versus humans is so skewed that they might accept for now to get them the get the shows back that AI will be coming just like 
ISI couldn't keep the computers out, um, they won't be able to keep the AI out. So it is tragic. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't want to sound heartless and say, you know what, this is the march of progress. I mean, yeah, it's not me. If I was being affected, then I would guess I wouldn't say say something like this. And somebody, someday AI might affect me too. And then I, I will regret having said, oh, but this is progress, so get over it. But unfortunately, there's nothing one can do about it either. Regulations don't work. I don't think that you know, this is almost immature to say that the U.S. government or some other government comes in and says you can't, you can do this kind of research, you can't do this kind of research. First of all, there's absolutely no way of, uh, there's absolutely no way of enforcing that <laughs> because people will keep on doing research, right? Um, and just become it'll go grow underground. That's all. Uh, so none of this to me really works. I think at least I believe in. And, and and I'll come back to the last thing that I, you know what what Jeffrey Hinton said was that the main the main thing that scares him about AI is the fact that it is about the notion of emergent behavior. So in any computer program, right, um, you know exactly how it will behave. Now sometimes it behaves in a bizarre way, but it's but that's really a limitation of your your intelligence. You didn't quite understand the way it works. So there were unintended interactions. That's what a bug is. But the, but a bug is it can be rectified by coding. You can by it can be debugged. But in AI, there's nothing like that. The AI is supposed to behave in a different way. I mean, that's why you have AI because it's learned some behavior that you didn't put it. So that is basically the core of their unease that now we are not in total control of the products that we create. You might I don't want to sound disrespectful to a Turing Award winner, but if you're the godfather of AI, isn't that the isn't that the basic thing about AI? I mean, I don't understand what you what you're essentially saying was as long as it was like funny scribbles on a piece of paper with no hope of it being implemented, I did it, and I had no problems doing it. But now that the ideas that I put out in the world are being implemented, I'm suddenly thinking, man, this is this is not good at all. I, I it's, Something there doesn't end. This guy's obviously won a Turing Award based on the very ideas. So, <laughs> leaving aside the purse, the issue of slight hypocrisy, I would say, <laughs> yeah. But I just feel that the cat is out of the bag at this point of time. If if if, if Dr. Hinton really had a problem with this, and again, Dr. Hinton also says this that I have always told myself that if I don't do it, somebody else will. And he's absolutely right. I don't think that Dr. Hinton could have said, you know what, I'm not, I'm worried about this. I will withdraw from AI and I will do something else. Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know, become a real estate agent or something, but that wouldn't have helped because there would be another person. So he was perfectly fine. I'm just saying that at this point of time for him to say, you know, all the ideas that I had now that they're coming to fruition, I am extremely concerned about this. It's kind of, but did you kind of, conclude, I, there's really nothing to be done about AI. And I don't think that we have reached a stage yet. We might, that we should be concerned about AI. Yes, some jobs will be lost. Again, some jobs will be created also. And it's not that the jobs created will replace the jobs that will disappear. When, uh, you know, travel sites basically, uh, when travel sites destroyed the travel agent business when Netflix destroyed uh, Blockbuster. 
it's not that blockbuster employees went and joined Netflix. They lost their jobs. So that is going to happen. You know, retraining is just doesn't have work. I mean, it doesn't work in that generation. It works perhaps in the next generation that nobody thinks that working at a blockbuster is a career option, but that's the next generation. Your generation, you're gone. So that disruption definitely large language models is going to bring about. There's no doubt in my mind. So yes, is this technology universally good? No, if you're a person who's going to lose their jobs, no, it's not good for you at all. Um, and it's not just a question of content writers. It's also a matter of people who write code. So this is not a good, this is not good if you are somebody who writes code, because unless you're writing algorithms, that's a different thing. New algorithms, yeah, as I said, LLM can't do it. But you're just basically taking stuff that exists and you just write code, just call this function, call that function, put it together. Uh, then yeah, LLM is coming for you because that the LLM is much better than you can ever be doing that thing. So it does understand context. It does understand a technical problem. If somebody has like, has figured something out, then yes, it will, it will, it will do it, but can't figure it something out on its own. That's the main thing. So for the next generation, the thing is, algorithms. It's not the coding, it's algorithms. It's a more higher ordered thinking. It's how do you solve? How do you put code elements together to solve another problem? So you get the AI to write the code, but then you compose the code, you put it together like Lego pieces to solve hitherto unsolved problems. So that, that to me is the exciting part. That basically frees the human mind in the way that compilers, you know, freed the people from thinking in terms of machine instructions, right? That allowed us to build complicated systems. If we were still writing in machine language, in instruction codes of, of, of processes, then what kind of software would we have? Would we have the complex software that we have today? No. So sophisticated compilers have allowed the human brain to think about higher order problems. And AI is going to enable humans to think of even more higher order problems. So in a way it's good, but again, if you're a person who's been writing what I call commodity code, this is not good news for you. But again, I don't think that, you know, putting a moratorium on AI research for six months is the solution to that. Or government intervention, or gov I just don't see how it will work. I mean, once it's like, it's exactly what I remember when I miss that. I'm I'm old, but not that old. But I've heard that there's the West Bengal government at what time were planning to ban computers and stuff. So obviously, even, even they couldn't do it. Even they couldn't do it in Bengal when they could do a lot of things. So I don't think that you can ban AI or you can regulate AI. I think that is not going to happen. There might be certain things that you can do, small things you can do um, in terms of oversight, in terms of explaining, in terms of being able to explain things. So you can, but I don't think that you can stop the march of AI. And I don't think you can stop. And I don't think, at least in my opinion, I don't think we've seen anything that should give us cause for existential dread of the Terminator kind. I don't think we've seen it yet. It might happen in a few years. And then I'll revisit what I said. I recorded this, so you know I've said this. So, um, but right now, I, I don't think there is much to be alarmed about. From a again, from an from an existential question, is that will will AI wipe out humans? I don't think so. Uh, will it wipe out a few jobs? Yes, it's a tragedy. It will happen, but that's 
that's been the march of science. I mean, it's been in inevitable in, in many ways. Uh, so, you know, thank you for uh, listening to this podcast. It might be a little bit heavier than what we usually talk about, but this is something which I've been thinking for a while. So I thought I would just put it out there. And if you like this kind of content, we can definitely do more of this, more science, you know, less of IPL maybe. I'll come back to IPL, of course, you know, IPL movies and stuff, the, the standard ones, you know, Modi, Rahul Gandhi, all that's fun stuff. But I just thought for a little change, let's do this for a while. So thank you, everybody. And hopefully I'll be back sooner next time. Till then, take care. Bye-bye.